come and behold him, the one and the only. There's only one God, and he's awesome. Well, good morning to you. Well, you're almost as awake as the 9 o'clock service. Maybe we need to stimulate you a little more. Well, welcome back to our series in 1 Corinthians. We're going to re-engage in that series. Uh, If you were here with us before, as we went through chapters 1 through 4, we know that Paul was going through issues of pride and division in the church, uh, issues of sin in the church driven by wrong thinking, wrong philosophy, and pride. But we all know that where one sin is present, there's likely to be other sins tagging along. If we allow one to hang around, they'll bring friends. Thomas Watson, the English Puritan preacher, said it this way, one sin lived in will make way for more, just as a little thief can open the door for larger thieves. Sins are linked and chained together. Well, this morning we're going to see that there was a sin that was chained to the sin of pride in this church, and it was a sexual sin and created a great scandal that came into that church. And we're going to see that the culture around the Corinthian church is not a lot different than the church around here. We're going to find that as it was there, here, Sinners go to church. Sinners join churches. In fact, sinners pastor churches. You see, you and I happen to be such people. We're all sinners, saved by the grace of God. And we preach every week the gospel of Jesus Christ, which preaches good news that we have been set free from the penalty of sin. We've been set free from the bondage of sin through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Yet, an everyday occurrence, if we're willing to call it what God calls it, is there still sin in the church. And why? Because we bring it. It's in me. It's in you. And this passage is going to tell us how the church is supposed to respond to sin. But we have to also realize that when we come and look at sin, we can't look with, ooh, look what they did, eyes. We have to realize that I'm a sinner. In fact, I get to speak to you this morning not from a theoretical perspective, but one who is acquainted with sin, who has experienced sin, who has failed in sin, who has been redeemed from sin. I'm a sinner that gets the privilege like God has ordained preachers to do, sinners preaching good news to sinners. So I'm no different. I'm just as temptable as you. I, can, I encounter the same temptations you do. That's why there's good news in the gospel. But you know, there's a problem with the fact that we're all sinners in many churches, in many places, because we're all feeling so vulnerable and weak and I make mistakes that we don't want to say anything about sin because, you know, people in glass houses don't throw many rocks. So we don't want to say much about sin because we don't come from a position of absolute purity, do we? 
But that's not what God says we should do. What we should be looking at when we see sin is not, ooh, look what they did, but ooh, for the grace of God, that could have been me. And they need rescue just like I would. Would I want someone to rescue me from a side of a cliff or would I want someone to just let me fall over? See, we need to look at the people that are trapped in sin with compassionate eyes, not with judgmental eyes. And see, the local church is to be a place where the attributes of God are on display, where people in our world can see a distinct difference between the holiness of our God and the godlessness of our culture. See, Paul tells us that, and we read about the Grecian culture, it is not much different than ours. Uh, The Greeks' view of life and sex was something like this. It was just a biological urge, something like taking a drink of water, getting some sleep, eating, sleeping. Sex was just whatever you found to do. Whatever happened, however it happened, it was fine. Just live it up. No one can tell you differently. But that doesn't sound too old-fashioned, does it? Sounds pretty contemporary, doesn't it? In fact, that late great American philosopher Hugh Hefner was quoted as saying, sex is just a biological necessity. You just find yourself a girl who's like-minded, let yourself go, it's no different than eating or drinking. Exactly like the Greeks. Our culture is just as bad or just as good, whatever you want to say, as the culture was around this church. But Bible-believing and Christ-exalting churches are really kind of like islands in the middle of a swamp or a storm of immorality that goes over this globe every day. And it's hard to imagine that we here at Valley Bible Church will remain totally unaffected by this storm. Do you think sin can creep into this church too? If you said no, I think you need to listen to this. Absolutely it can. Well, But God's designed for sex, So, just so people hear me right. Sex is wonderful. God designed it, so we know it was done right. It wasn't designed by some GM engineer. This was by God of the universe, and he designed it to be wonderful. But God's perfect design has been so distorted and so marred by our immorality and our sin that we don't even recognize what God originally intended, many of us. And so what's happening now is that he said, the best way to enjoy sex in life is in a committed marriage. You will not experience anything like it. In fact, anything else is really a problem. And see, but the problem here is what Paul was not concerned with and we shouldn't be concerned with is all the storms that rage outside is what happens when that comes into the church when these storms crash over the church and our boat is not watertight. You see, by God's grace and power, the sin outside can't destroy the church inside if we remain in obedience and faithfulness to God. But, Dwight L. Moody said it this way, Christians should live in the world but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water But if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. So Christians may live in the world, but if if the world gets into them, they sink, and so does the church. We gotta be careful. If the world gets into us, we have no distinction between the world, and we go down. 
So the problem that Paul's addressing here is really for us to promote and preserve the purity of Christ's bride, the church, and for you and I to apply it to our personal lives. It's not a a feel-good passage this morning, but it's God's word. And I love God's word, and so we're gonna dive right in. So open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter five. Verse one. It is actually reported that there is is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Father, help us to see in this passage your passion, your heart, your desire for not only us to be pure as Christians, but for your church to be protected and preserved pure. Father, if it is to be a light on a hill, let us keep that light bright. Let us do what your word says. Let us trust you that it's the best way to handle it. Let us have confidence in your plan and not in man's reasoning about how to make things better. Let us never tolerate what you do not. Let us not tolerate sin, even in our own life, never in the church. Help us to see these things and to trust you and to apply them. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, I've titled my message this morning, When Scandal Enters the Church. It's a sad thing. As we look at our passage this morning, we see that Paul's addressing two scandals. The first one is obvious, the man who is living unrepentantly, continually engaged in the outrageous sin of morality, of immorality. And even though this is terrible, and it is, this is not Paul's chief concern for writing this passage. He's writing to address the second scandal. And to him, the second scandal is this. It was the church's absolutely incomprehensible lack of action and attention and the toleration of this sin in its midst. They failed to act and remove this sin from the church. They were tolerating it. In fact, we'll see later, they were proud of their toleration. This is a bad situation. It made Paul very angry And Paul knew we have to leave immorality behind, and we do today as individual Christians and as a church. 
But before we do that, I have to make sure you understand what immorality even means because if you ask 10 people on the street, you're not gonna get two answers the same. What people think is immoral is not the point. The point is what does God say is immoral? We don't go by the culture's rules. We live by the word of God. And if the word of God says it's wrong, it's wrong. We don't try to justify, we don't try to say, well, they don't live in our day and age. We can apply that a little differently here. We're enlightened. No, if the word of God says it, that's what it is. And so what is it, sexual immorality? Well, sexual immorality comes from a word that Paul found, wrote, is pornea. Anybody hear where that's going? It's where we get pornography. And pornea is another way it's translated as fornication. We don't hear that too much anymore, do we? Sounds too cruel. But fornication, sexual immorality really mean the same thing, and it's a broad term um, that really means any sexual activity, relationship, or expression that's outside of the bounds of God's perfect design. It's something that God says is forbidden. And what kinds of things are those? Well, that would be sex outside of marriage, we call that adultery, or incest, or even sex before marriage, even how committed and engaged you are. God says no, that's not best, and it's wrong. How about, well, the world's confused about this. Uh, how about sexual relationships or relationships of lesbianism, homosexuality, or bestiality? God says they're all wrong. I have no choice but to preach what God says. He says it's wrong. We don't get to make the rules. He designed sex to be wonderful in a committed relationship. In fact, you won't find any sex better. God's promised that. So what's happened here? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, which is a little later to the same church, he says, flee sexual immorality. Now, I think we don't hear the command. The command is flee. A lot of us said, well, I should use willpower. I should use discretion. I should use force of will. I will say no. I will demand and fight. No, we're not supposed to fight this one. We're supposed to put our tennis shoes on and run. When you find yourself in a position where you're tempted to be sexually immoral, run. Run. Not stand there and use your Spirit-led willpower to say no. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. Jesus and the Holy Scripture says run. We gotta be pure, like God is pure. See, the interesting thing is, if we're not pure, according to 1 Timothy, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, keep yourself pure, because he reminds him that effectiveness, fruitfulness in the Christian life or in any ministry is tied to us being pure. If we are not a pure church, God will not use us. If we're not pure people, God will not use us. We won't have impact. See, immorality has been unacceptable to God from the beginning. I mean, if we just go back, Genesis chapter 39, Joseph is in Egypt. He's living in Potiphar's house and we read in scripture that Joseph was a hunk. Because it says he was attractive in form and appearance. And 
Potiphar's wife really wanted him, and she pursued him every day, and he kept saying no until she trapped him in a room one day, and he fled. He did exactly what 1 Corinthians 6 says to do. He ran. Did that work out very well for him immediately? Nope. Was he worried about what Potiphar was going to think? Nope. It says what he was worried about. In verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He recognized the one person that he's worried about, the one person that will always be offended, is God. He's the one we worry about. I think sometimes we forget this. We think that the problem is the person we're sinning against, a spouse, a friend, a neighbor, our extended family. That's not who we should be worried about. We should be worried about sinning against God. Because I, I hear way too much, well, this sin isn't hurting anybody. What? You think God took a vacation? It hurt God. When we sin, it's offensive to God. It always will be. Well, David said the same thing after he sinned with Bathsheba. And remember, this is kind of right in part of our verse where it says we need to confront and deal with these sinful things. When Nathan the prophet confronted David, that's the only time he repented, by the way. He didn't repent on his own. He had to be confronted. When he was confronted, he repented. And what he said was this in verse 4, Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Did we forget about Uriah? He's dead. Bathsheba was taken against her will. Why was he not worried about them? Because he realizes the greatest offense in our life is against God. And if we're not worried about that one, he's not really wanting us to worry about the ones over here. We could worry about our neighbor all day long or our wife or our husband or our friend or our loved one, but if we're not worried about what God thinks, we're in trouble. God is the one who cares. And he says, well, does God really care? Well, let's just take a quick look at the scene at the base of Mount Sinai. They're worshiping a golden calf. They indulged in a great orgy. What it said that God did? He says, well, that's not very good. No, it says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Wow. He killed 23,000 people that did this in a moment. Do you think God cares? Do you think he approves of immorality? No, he does not. He does not. And we cannot. And the church cannot. So we must heed the example so now let's jump in really quickly and go through the three things this passage is trying to tell us. The need for discipline, the method of discipline, and the importance of discipline. The need for discipline starts in verses, verses 1 and 2. And we should note that verse 1 actually follows verse 21 of the prior chapter, chapter 4. He had just told them, I'm coming to you soon in verse 19. and verse 21, he says, but you decide whether I come with you of the rod or in love and gentleness. This, is, I believe, is one of the ways that this church could tell Paul how they wanted him to arrive. He says, look, if you hear what I'm telling you and you do what I command here and you deal with this immorality issue, then I can come more lovingly and gently. But if you leave this immorality issue alone and you don't resolve it, you're not going to be too happy with how I'm coming to you. Paul was upset. Paul was angry. 
And he says in verse 1, it's actually being reported. Now, the, I love the term. You've got to catch the tense of this. This is not, I heard of a random report. That's not it. It says, the word actually means commonly or generally. It's the general and continual report about you guys that there is fornication and immorality among you. So how would you like that to be the reputation of Valley? You know, what's really known about that church is a lot of people fornicate there. What? A church? In fact, when the church is practicing sin, that's bad. But Paul says it's a sin unlike even the pagans commit. You've got a guy there committing incest with his stepmother, and he says, remember, the Roman, whole Roman territory and empire, incest was against the law. And now you have the church shocking the pagans about what kind of sins they can commit. Do you see something wrong here? Paul was not happy. Not necessarily because of the sin alone, but the church wasn't even responding. They were still proud. He says the sin was this. A man has his father's wife. We know it wasn't his real mother because the Bible uses father's wife really to mean stepmother. And so what happens here is what's probably happened is this man had a son. His wife passed away or left. We don't know exactly what happened to her, but he remarried. And his son, as he grew up, he developed sexual attraction to his stepmother. In fact, what we see by how Paul reprimanded this whole situation, he called it the sin of fornication. So I'm almost taking it as not the sin of adultery. If he's still married to his dad, it would have been a sin of adultery. He probably caused the divorce of his parents, of his mom and uh, stepmom and dad. So here's a man who calls himself a believer. He develops a sexual relationship with his stepmother, causes a divorce of that relationship, and now he's living in that, and the church is looking the other way. Wow. What's interesting here is to me, this whole situation stinks because. Paul didn't reprimand, I don't think, the woman. Do you know why? I don't think she belonged to the church. I don't think she was saved. So here you have a worse problem. You have a believer becoming unequally yoked with an unbeliever, stealing his dad's wife, causing a divorce, and living in blatant sin that was against the law of the empire. And the church says nothing. This cannot be. And he says, Paul says, you are arrogant. You are puffed up. In fact, you are not just puffed up. You continue to be puffed up. Even in light of this, you continue to be puffed up. You keep saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I have great gifts. I have worldly wisdom. We all speak in tongues. What does that matter when you're tolerating sin like this in your camp? Those mean nothing. We can't rest on any laurels here because we have great programs. If we ever have sin in the camp and we don't deal with it, all the rest of that is wiped out. It's useless. What kind of testimony on the hill would we have? Do you think they're going to look at all of our youth programs when we have people sleeping with their mothers or mother-in-laws or whatever it is? They won't care. They'll only be talking about the sin. Your testimony goes down the toilet. And Paul says this. He says, you're proud. In fact, you're so proud about this, you missed it. You should be mourning. What does he say next? 
you should be mourning. This is like mourning for the dead. This is not like casually, casually sad. You should be mourning like Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus on your face in the ground. But you're not. You're not even upset. You're proud because you're tolerant. You know, all of us sin. All of us have problems. I mean, he's, his is a little different than mine, maybe a little worse, but hey, we're all in a grace. Are you kidding me? He's saying, you're proud about the wrong stuff. And when a church ever gets to the place where it doesn't mourn and it doesn't feel sadness or sorrow over someone in its midst that's caught and trapped in sin and no one steps forward to try to correct that, that church is going down. It will. God's not going to protect that church. We learn about this later in, the, in my message. We're going to talk about the church of Thyatira. God wasn't too happy with that one. So you've got to be aware that we're going to practice this at Valley Bible Church. We have practiced it in the past. We're already dealing with an issue right now of the same thing, unfortunately. But it's not unfortunate we're dealing with it. It's unfortunate that it's happening. But I'm glad we're taking action according to Scripture. And in the future, we are committed. Leadership is committed to do this because it's the Word of God and we're going to obey. Well, I just want to follow up a little bit here because you might say, well, Jesus is a lot more kind than you guys. Really? Well, what he said to the church in Thyatira, he says, you know, Revelation 2, 19-20, if you want to check me, you got a lot of stuff going on over there, big programs, a lot of faith, a lot of service, a lot of patience, a lot of works, you know, not doing too bad, but I've got one thing against you. You are tolerating that woman, Jezebel. Now, that wasn't probably her real name, but that's a telling name. It's a descriptive name that said, this is a traitorous woman, and you're not doing anything. You're not protecting my flock. She's there, loose. And it says here, Jesus' own words. She calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and seduces my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she refuses to repent. So now I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those that commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent, and I will strike her children dead. All the churches shall know by what I'm doing here that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. Do you hear how serious Jesus is about sin in the camp? Should we not take it equally serious? I believe we should and I believe we are. But it's also in our personal lives. See, whatever sin is not repented of, and it is allowed to remain, it can only have a negative, infectious effect on the church. Ephesians 5.3 says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous, covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It doesn't say instead tolerate them. Say nothing about them. Expose them. And see, this is interesting to me. Because Galatians 6.1 says the same thing. If you catch a brother in a sin, what are you supposed to do? Look the other way because you've got problems too? 
What does it say? Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Can you restore him from afar? I'm thinking restoration thoughts. You got to get in their face. You got to say, brother, sister, what are you doing? Is it true? Then you follow the pattern of Matthew 18. If they say, yeah, it's true and I'm doing it and I can't, and I'm not stopping. Then you take two witnesses, one or two witnesses. You confirm, it says, brother, you really got to change this. And if he won't listen to them, what do you do? You take it to the church and here we are in verse two. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I'm assuming that Paul already knew there was enough witnesses and enough tries. This person was not changing. He was in his unrepentant sin and he needs to be removed. Paul was saying, you must remove the person from among you. Get rid of them. Sounds brutal, doesn't it? I mean, many of you might in here even tell me, but Pastor Tim, I mean, what that person really needs is Jesus and the church. God's saying, no. No, they don't. I know what they really need. They need discipline, and this is what I want you to do. If you're going to be with me, this is how you need to do it. But I don't understand. I don't care if you understand. This is what you need to do. Put him out. Because discipline is not inconsistent with love. We think we're being unloving when we discipline. God says the opposite. Hebrews 12, 6, what does he say? The Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. What he tells us is not love, and what is inconsistent with love is the lack of discipline. Proverbs 12, 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod really likes his son. No, hates his son. And he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. See, the lack of discipline, our lack of action is what shows we don't care, that we don't love him. When we act, we prove we do love him. We're doing what God says to do. God wants to restore the person. Can you help him? We must, because it also keeps the church pure. Well, he goes on and says, I'm absent from the body, but I've already made my determination. In fact, if I, a miles, miles and miles away from you, can make this decision, what's wrong with you guys? You're living right in the middle of it. In fact, you know I know about this. You know the world knows about this. And you know the world knows that you know the world knows about this. And still you won't do anything. So it tells me you don't even understand what the problem is. There's a cancer in your church, and you're not even going to work on it. Well, he says, what are we supposed to do? When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, you have my apostolic commendation and backing, I stand with you. With the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Now, this is interesting. It's assumed by Paul here that this is not a meeting that takes place by church leadership and one guy in a back room. Do you see that? When you are assembled, this is our job. Church discipline is not the leader's job. We just kick it and put it in front of you. It's the church's job to do discipline. It says when you are assembled together, not a private matter anymore, all of us are needed to help put the encouragement back to that saint to repent, 
That's what we're about. We're about restoration. We're not about punishment. We're about restoration. And God says, we all are involved. So I'm counting on you all. When, if this ever happens in this church, stand with God. Stand with leadership. Be part of the process. Know that this is God's way of restoring a repentant heart. Well, what's it say? When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, I think this is simply when you say in Jesus' name on a prayer, you're not invoking some special magic words in Jesus' name. So now you have to listen to me, God. Uh Uh-uh. You're just saying, I'm praying because Jesus has given me access and he's the key to this prayer. And it's also because Jesus, I want to pray what is consistent with what he would want if he was in my chair. And so when he says, when you're taking this action in Jesus' name, you're doing exactly what Jesus said he would do. What would happen if Jesus showed up to that church? He'd do the same thing he did in Thyatira. And says, so when you come in Jesus' name, when you come doing what Jesus wants to do, no one other fact, you'll have the power of Jesus behind you. See, church discipline is never easy. I mean, this is our friend or our brother or our sister, the one we've hung out in life with maybe for years, and now they've got in the place where they're trapped by sin and they won't repent. It breaks our hearts. It should make us mourn. It's hard to get in their face. We might be nervous about it. They might say, well, you're not perfect. Absolutely I'm not, but I must do it. So where's the power to do that come from? It comes from Jesus. Jesus says, I will be part of protecting my bride, the church, to keep it pure. And I will give you power if you act in my name to do what I'm calling you to do. So if you think, well, this is going to be hard, you're right. But guess what? God says he'll give you the power to do it. You won't want to go run in and rescue at the last minute and undermine leadership. You'll do what is hard because Jesus will give us the power. Well, I think there's one other thing. Delivering this man to Satan I don't know. Does anybody know Satan's address? You're going to put a UPS box and put them in it and ship them to Satan? Is that how you deliver someone to Satan? No. It's not so complicated. You don't have to send them to a seance or anything. Satan is called by Jesus as the prince of this world. Basically, delivering to Satan means he's removed from the safety and the protection of the church, and he's put out in Satan's domain. He's now free to be abused by Satan. Just like Job had been given permission by God, or Satan got permission from God to abuse Job in his body, could Satan ever attack Job's spirit? The answer is no. If this believer has been put out in Satan's domain, who owns his spirit? Jesus. Do you think Jesus is going to let his spirit be destroyed? Not a chance. But he's saying, I'm going to let Satan do his worst to his body, to his flesh. That's what he said. This is flesh as opposed to spirit. The spirit is the inner man. The flesh is the outer man. Job's outer man was wrecked by Satan. This man that's been turned over is going to have his flesh wrecked, maybe even destroyed. But you have to know this. Whenever we put someone out, and they're no longer permitted to be in the safety of the fellowship. They no longer get to enjoy fellowship. They no longer get to attend. Something happens to the person. God works on restoring them and causing them to repent. That's the pressure they need. 
But even if they never repented, if this person was put out and had years of pain in their fleshly bodies, and their bodies were destroyed, just like Ananias and Sapphira, their bodies were destroyed by Satan, what happens at the end? It says they're going to have what? Their spirit saved in the end. They're going to stand redeemed. They're going to stand in the redeemed group in heaven with Jesus, even though their body was destroyed by Satan. Does God want them to be destroyed? Absolutely not. But I'll use all the pressure I can to get you to change, to not make light of the cross work of my son who the only reason he went to the cross was because of your sin and you're refusing to let go of that sin I'm not going to let you live there I love you too much I'm going to let you get punished and if you won't come I'll just take your spirit at the end you will be in heaven but you might go through a lot of suffering on this earth well I think there's another thing by the way I do believe Others may disagree. Scholars are kind of torn. That there's a man in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, that repented. I believe it's this man. And I think the church in Corinth was slow to put him out. Paul had to tell him what to do, get angry with him. They finally did the right thing. They put him out. The man repented, and now the church in 2 Corinthians had to be told, let him back in. You nuts. You, you turn him over to Satan. Satan does the work I wanted him to do. He now has repented. He's come back in repentance, and you won't let him back in. What a, I mean, what a group. I hope we're not as dense as the Corinthians, but something tells me we are. We can be. Anyway, let's just move on. The last one is the importance of church discipline. I think you already see it. Christ wants to protect the purity and the testimony of his church. He wants it to be sound. He wants it to be healthy. You know, when we have diseases, the more severe the disease, the more severe the treatment we might tolerate. In fact, I've seen, and I know of people in my own life that have gone through cancer, and the treatment for cancer seems far more grueling than having the disease. The only problem is, if you don't go through the treatment, you die. Well, my nephew went through this in the same way. I mean, we rejoice when somebody's malignancy was removed by surgery, and they're now declared cancer-free. We rejoice. In the same way, we should rejoice in the church, that the church is cancer-free. But sometimes you have to do what my nephew did, and in order to preserve his life, which he was willing to do, he had his eye removed and his left leg removed. Why? He wanted to save his life. You do what's necessary. And I think what God's saying, unless the sexual impurity is removed from this church, it will spread like a cancer and you will not recover. That's why we must. The church in Laodicea in Revelation 3 had a bad set of glasses on. And this is my concern for us. I think some of us give ourselves a big pass. You know, my checkbook's in good shape. You know, I do give regularly. Uh, I got my vacations planned. Uh, my house is clean. Whatever it is. And Jesus gives a different diagnosis to a church that evaluated itself. He said this. 
Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. I'm good. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Spiritually, you got nothing. Let us not ever be deceived on ourselves. Let me not be deceived in myself to evaluate myself right. That's why we say, let us see our own sin, Father. Reveal anything that's wicked in me because we're not the best judges of what's going on. Help us as a church, help us as individuals look at our own lives with Jesus' glasses rather than our own. Well, he says your boasting is not good. He uses example of leaven. Leaven was just what they used in that term, time. They pulled a lump of dough off of what was going to be baked. They rolled it up, put it in water, let it ferment. And then they would pull it out when they baked the next loaf as a starter for yeast. We just go down and buy Fleischmann's, right, and get some yeast. But they had to do this to keep making bread in the future that would rise. They needed yeast. So they would take this fermented ball and put it in the new loaf, old to the new, old to the new. He's saying, leave the old behind. Cleanse the leaven out of your life. You don't need to bring old stuff forward. You have a new life in Jesus Christ. Do not bring the old stuff with you. Any old ways from your old life, do not bring with you. Leave them behind. Let the leaven out. Because a little leaven, what does he say? Will leaven the whole loaf. You might think, well, it's only one person in that church that's sinning. That's no big deal. It was only one person in this case, and it about took the church down because they had a worldwide reputation of immorality. It only takes one that we ignore. Well, we're going to cleanse out. And the last thing it says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Do you get it? In Passover in Egypt, God told them to sacrifice the spotless lamb, put the blood over the doorpost, and the angel of death would pass over them. And because of that, sin, that action, all the firstborn of Egypt died, but not Israel. And Pharaoh says, out, get out of here, be gone. You're out of Egypt. That spotless lamb secured their safe deliverance from Egypt. They were set free from their bondage. Jesus Christ died on a cross. Why? To set us free from our sins and our penalty of sin. To set us free from the power of sin. He's been sacrificed. We've been set free from the world. We're not to live in the world anymore. Just like Egypt, the Israelites were not supposed to live in Egypt anymore. They're supposed to leave. We're supposed to leave the world behind. Are we leaving the world behind? Are we taking that little lump with us? Because we never know when you might not find yeast and you're baking bread with it. This is what he's telling them. He says, do not leave anything from your old life and bring it to the Christian life. It doesn't fit. We're unleavened bread. We're bread without yeast, without sin. See, leaven also meant the influence of evil. And that's what he's saying. Do not bring any influence of evil from your old life into the Christian life. Have you done that? Have you made sure there's nothing left over from your old life that you're still treasuring. Well, I think we need to close and say this. It's clear that God wants us to discipline. 
It's clear he wants us to have purity in the church. It's clear that we must take action that's sometimes hard that needs his power. But let me ask you a couple questions. I had to ask me, and I don't like them. So if you don't like them, join me. Is there anything in your life that you've learned to tolerate? Anything that you know God really wanted you to deal with, but it's not that big a deal. I think I can get by. Is there anything you've learned to tolerate? And what you really need to do is grab that thing by the throat, put it down on the counter and say, I've had it, I'm done with you, I'm over with sin, I'm leaving sin behind, the cost of my Savior, I'm gonna rejoice in that. It says rejoice in our Passover line, celebrate. He's not about talking about celebrating Passover, he's talking about celebrating the fact that if you're focused on Christ and what he did to buy you out of slavery of sin, how he removed the penalty of sin, how he bled and died because of your sin, while you're doing that, you'll find it pretty hard to keep sinning. And that's what it says in verse eight. Let us celebrate the festival. Celebrate the Passover. Celebrate our Passover lamb, Christ. You won't sin if you're celebrating Christ. What else? I think something else we do because we tolerate. We also neglect. It's not the things in my life I think that I'm doing that or God says not to do is my bigger problem. The bigger problem for me is not doing the things that I should do. Somehow those are easier to forget. And I have to repent of my bad priorities or maybe just my laziness. But are you neglecting to do anything that God is calling you to do? It's the same because neglect or tolerance both will destroy the power of God in a church. They're both disobedience. So are you and I neglecting what's essential but busy with what doesn't matter? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says, God's firm foundation stands sure. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's us. Have you departed? Have you said goodbye to all iniquity? Let him who names the name of the Lord depart all iniquity. Then it goes on in that passage to say, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, then he will be fit for the master's use. You want to be used by God? He will not use a dirty vessel. He won't. No, you'll go to heaven, but you'll have no impact for Christ. You'll have no influence and fruit in your life. And so I always ask you, are you making any excuses today for any bad attitudes or actions or things that God is calling you to put away that you've carried back with you from your old life? You know, it's not just adultery, people. It's not just incest. You know, we can really rally around someone who's committing adultery. Boy, that's wrong. And we got our fingers out. What about envy? Gossip. Galatians 5 says those are just as sinful. Do we tolerate those? You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, those are small sins. (laughs) 
God's not really, what? It's in the list that God says that he's not going to accept. Do we treat it the same? We should be disciplining people for gossip. Did you know that gossip can destroy a church as quickly as immorality? And it has many churches. Well, I just want to say this to you. If we have sin in the camp, we must deal with it. And it doesn't matter what kind. Sin in the camp is sin in the camp. For Achan, it was he stole a wedge of gold, and Israel went down in flames until God dealt with Achan. For us, I don't know what it is, but may we be people who want to be pure first here. And as we come together, we will jointly protect the sanctity of the bride of Christ and keep it pure because the church is precious to God as, it, as is each of you. And he's not going to tolerate it. And if we don't deal with it, he'll deal with us. I would much rather prefer to obedience than God dealing with us. And I hope you do too. Father, this has been a convicting message from my heart because there's lots of stuff that I know that I should be doing that I haven't got quite got around to yet. So forgive me for that, Father, and help me have the attitude of I don't want to do things that are wrong and I don't want to miss things that are right. Help me to be pure in your church. Help this church to be pure, to be committed to purity, to be committed to helping one another out. When someone's caught in a sin, we don't wag our fingers. We try to restore the brother or sister. May we not be a judgmental place that runs around with our Sherlock Holmes detection kit to find out who's sinning. That's not what you're calling us to. You'll reveal whoever is in sin. You said you would reveal that which was done in the dark. So if we're supposed to deal with a sin, we know you'll let us know. But Father, please let us approach you in purity. And would you let us use your glasses as we give ourselves a grade? that we wouldn't give ourselves such a high mark when you're not as pleased. Would you help each of us this week, Father, just to pursue purity, leaving leaven behind and giving glory to Christ who has rescued us from all coming wrath and from your judgment and has given us a place in heaven. Let us rejoice in Christ this week. In Jesus' name, amen.